From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm your host, Molly Kaplan. In early October, the United States Labor Department reported that women were leaving the workforce at four times the rate of men. And a few months earlier, a report from McKinsey Global revealed that while women made up just 43% of the workforce, they had borne 56% of COVID-related job losses. This data, and much more, led one news source to call this moment America's first female recession. What exactly is going on? Why are women losing and leaving jobs more than men during this global pandemic? And what can we do about it? Here to answer these questions is Colleen Ammerman. Ammerman is the director of Harvard Business School's Gender Initiative. She is also the co-author of an upcoming book, Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers that Still Hold Women Back at Work. Colleen, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Molly. I'm happy to be here. I want to start with the big picture here. Back in May of this year, in spite of huge growth in unemployment and a lot of uncertainty about the pandemic, there was some optimism about ways in which normalizing working from home and more flexible hours might actually benefit women. But even back in May, you were skeptical. You said of a paper making these claims, while we share the author's hope, we aren't convinced that the sudden expansion of remote work will end up benefiting women. Now, as we speak, you seem to have been right to doubt those claims. And as I mentioned in one article called This Loss of Women in the Workforce, America's First Female Recession. Colleen, what have we seen happen to women in the workforce over the last several months in a sort of big picture way? Well, we've seen really massive exits from the labor force, right? I mean, that's what all the data and statistics are pointing to. I mean, that's kind of the top line, right? We're seeing women exit jobs, um, reduce their work hours, even when they're able to stay in jobs at higher rates than men. And then I think, you know, we're also seeing subtler things. The latest Women in the Workplace study from McKinsey and Lean In just came out a week or two ago. And one of the things that I noticed there was that I haven't seen covered elsewhere, that they had a finding that Mothers are much more likely than fathers to worry about how their performance is being viewed, you know, negatively because of their need to be caregiving, right? Which both mothers and fathers are in a situation of needing to do this caregiving that is at a much higher level and much more burdensome than it typically was. But if you are concerned about how your performance is being viewed and maybe you're not getting that positive feedback, which then kind of feeds into, you know, again, these exits from the labor force and women making decisions that, you know, they're either going to really ratchet back their careers or step back altogether. And just to clarify, when we talk about this gender gap, are we talking mostly about a gap in the mothers who are working? Is that the population that this is affecting the most? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the huge phenomenon that we're seeing here, right, is it's really... When we say women exiting from the labor force, we're really talking about mothers, right? And I think it's, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think it's really important to note that. And I mean, I do think, however, it's also important to note that there are ways that the shift to remote work and the shift to virtual work in particular can be problematic for women in general if companies and managers aren't really thoughtful about what it means to create an inclusive work environment in a virtual space. That's actually, I think, not just relevant to mothers, but in terms of exits from the labor force and reduction in work hours, we're definitely seeing that among mothers in particular. I'm curious, what exactly for non-mothers are we talking about in terms of what you just mentioned about the remote work environment being more, in some ways, difficult for women than for men? 
Well, this is some things that we talked about a bit in this article back in Harvard Business Review in May that my co-author and I wrote, things that we talked a bit about some of these phenomena relating to caregiving, but then also wanted to point out there's other things that are likely going on, right? So if you think about a virtual work environment, there are ways in which exclusion can really become frictionless as compared to a real world environment. And so I think that, again, like a lot side of people, conversations that are happening, sort of like exactly. the days of the, the golf club only accepting men and then those business deals happening exactly. over some golf on the weekend. Some of the same trends are happening on Zoom chats or wherever in these sort of private spaces. Exactly. You can see that. I think there's a real danger around that. If Again, if companies and managers aren't thoughtful about preventing that, because exactly right, you can still create these sort of exclusive spaces or these insular spaces where people are connecting to, you know, people who look like them. And so if you're talking about the people in power, that's mostly other white, straight, U.S.-born men. And again, I think one thing that's really tricky about it is that in the previous world we lived in, often that was at least somewhat visible to people who were being excluded, right? So you could actually see the three guys walk off to have the side conversation or arrive at a meeting and realize, oh, there was a meeting happening before this meeting, right? All of these phenomena that are actually quite well-known and well-documented and people talk about. But what we were worried about, my co-author and I, when we started talking about this, really before we even wrote the article, kind of in the early days of the pandemic, is that think about all of the ways in which that becomes even easier, even unintentionally, right? So if you think about who are you inviting to that pre-meeting or who are you kind of engaging in a side chat with? And of course, there's ways in which this can be intentional and explicit and people can exclude deliberate. Really, but I think a lot of times people just aren't thinking about it, especially in when you're in kind of a crisis mode and you're thinking about, okay, I need to make decisions quickly. Who can I rely on? Again, often that's going to be the people that look like you, right? Which is not necessarily or think like you or go to the same conclusions right. as you. Right. I mean, this is a, you know, people do this naturally. It's a phenomenon that social scientists call homophily. We're drawn to others who are like us, especially on really salient dimensions, things that are important in our society. Gender and race are very salient the society we live in. So it's that in itself is not nefarious. It's not sort of that we're bad people because homophily is something that we engage in, right? But if you think about the downstream effects of that, if you're needing to make quick decisions, you know, you're in a difficult time and you're always kind of referring back to the same people who, as you just said, not only might look like you, but also may think like you, have the same kind of background that you do, be relying on some of the same assumptions, you can see that's problematic for a whole host of reasons. And what's also worth noting is that, as is too often true, these challenges and the loss of women in the workforce has not been spread equally. It seems like some women are more impacted than others. Can you talk more specifically about populations within the sort of larger structure of women who have been disproportionately affected? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, women of color are overrepresented, particularly Black women and Latinas in some of the lower wage sectors, right? So there's going to just be a bigger impact there. And it is the case, you know, all the most recent data that I've seen on the September jobs report that the unemployment rate is higher for women of color as compared to white women. But what we're seeing the pandemic do is really just both reveal and entrench some of these inequalities, both along racial and gender lines. And then, of course, women of color being at the intersection of being marginalized by gender and race are going to be the hardest hit. And then it seems like, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that if you're undocumented, if you're an undocumented woman, that on top of having this workforce disparity being worse for women of color, that 
if you are an undocumented woman, you also may not have access to unemployment. You may not be allowed to apply for it. You also may be too scared to put your name into an official system, even in states that do allow you. And I, I just imagine that that is also a factor here. Absolutely, right? I mean, I think we heard a lot about people in families with undocumented breadwinners not receiving stimulus funds, right? So <laughs> many, many people in our economy, right, that are in fact paying taxes, paying into the system, not being able to access even those supports as limited as they were set up either by federal or state government. So, I mean, I think that's exactly right, is affecting everyone in different ways, kind of depending on where they are across the spectrum. And I think that's why actually it's quite important to look at what's happening to high-earning, highly educated women, right? I think sometimes it's easy to be dismissive of that and to say, well, these are women that, in fact, are already very privileged. They're not sort of suffering in the same ways that women in lower-earning sectors of the economy are. You know, why should we care about them? Why should we care so much? And I think, right, it's important to acknowledge that it is quite different, right? If you are in a dual-career family, you both have professional jobs, it's a different set of kind of suffering and a different set of circumstances you're facing. But I think what it reveals is that the sort of entrenched nature of gender inequality, right, is having these really deleterious effects even on women who are very privileged, right, are very advantaged, right, have the benefit of maybe an elite education even, you know, who have the benefit of working for a company that provides supports, right, but they're in fact still exiting the labor force at these really alarming rates. I think that's actually quite important to acknowledge because I think it just points up the way that gender inequality really is, you know, it continues to be such a profound problem. Hmm. So if I understand correctly, it's important because if a population that already has more buffers than maybe other populations is still impacted in such an incredibly significant way, then we truly need to stop and pay attention and look at what's going on. Does that sum it up? Yes, basically, yes, that's well put, right? I think even those folks, right, with a lot of buffers are still feeling these effects, right? And it's going to have long-term consequences, again, on the women in leadership, you know, the representation of women in these high-powered, high-paying, highly influential fields. So I think that that is something that has really profound effects on the economy as a whole and on society as a whole. So yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm curious to dig into the data a little bit more. It seems like we have two trends that are happening during the pandemic. Some people have been losing their jobs and others have been leaving their jobs. But in both cases, it's exponentially more for women than for men. And if we focus for one minute on the people who are being laid off, why were women hit particularly hard at the beginning of the recession? Why are women being laid off in higher numbers? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, right? So we've talked about the fact that women have been overrepresented in a lot of the industries that have been particularly hard hit, right? And I think from what I understand, that's a huge factor. I think that there's other things at play when you look beyond those industries. And in particular, again, when you go back to the caregiving burden, right? So if you're a company, especially if you're thinking, I would argue in a very short-term fashion about what you need from your employees and not really thinking long-term, you know, it may seem to you like an easy decision to lay off the people who, right? have that higher caregiving burden and who, you know, who are not necessarily able to spend as many hours working, or maybe that's a belief that you have about them. I mean, I think what we also get into here is that we don't always make decisions 
based on what's happening or based on data, even when we kind of think we do or, or kind of assume that we are, right? So we know a lot from research about the ways that mothers in particular are viewed in the workforce and the kinds of impacts that has on how they're treated, right? Um, and the relationship between kind of biases about women's mother's commitment to work and how that impacts whether they're hired, whether they're promoted, how much they're paid. I don't know that research has been done specifically on layoffs, but I would argue that a lot of the same mechanisms are at play there. So I think that that is another layer that's coming in. And one thing I think you noted was that as opposed to the stigma that some women have sort of balancing caregiving needs with their jobs, the inverse is true for fathers, right? That there's actually a sort of soft and fuzzy social benefit to colleagues or managers seeing fathers tending to caregiving needs. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yes, that is right. That's also documented in the research. It's usually referred to as the fatherhood bonus or the daddy bonus as opposed to the motherhood penalty, which is what I was just referring to. So the motherhood penalty, which is quite well documented, is this outcome of women with children being less likely to be hired, being paid less, and just sort of being viewed more negatively as it pertains to work compared to women without children or compared to men in general, whether regardless of whether the men have kids or not. And the important thing about that is that we do know the causal mechanism, and it's because of a belief that mothers are less committed to work than those other groups, right? So in comparison, research has also documented something called the fatherhood bonus, which is basically the inverse, right? Is that a lot of times men with children get actually an earnings bump and certainly are also, you know, just viewed more favorably, right? And this that's complicated. Sometimes there can be stigma around taking advantage of parental leave or flexibility. That can happen to both women and men. So it's not sort of, it's a complicated phenomenon and it does depend on sort of contextual factors in the organization. But by and large, men are not sort of being dinged, so to speak, for their parenthood status, right? And you can think about this just even in terms of kind of in a quotidian way, like day to day, right? So if you think about you have two parents each on a different Zoom call for some important meeting, the kid runs into the room, you know, needing something or, you know. Right. The BBC interview that went viral a couple years ago where there was a man on a, a live interview and his two kids flew in and the commentator thought it was really funny and everybody was like, oh, I relate, I relate. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a classic example that, of course, now everyone's saying, yes, you know, it's happened to all of us now. You know, he was the trailblazer. You think about these two exact same scenes happening, you know, one with a woman and one with a man, right? And I think everything that we know from research, and I think a lot of us, if we're honest, sort of just about even our own implicit biases, would admit that we probably would react differently, right? And then, you know, this people comment on this all the time. You know, sometimes you see dad's at the park or whatever. And there's this sort of, oh, that's great. He's spending time with his kids and it's more expected for women, right? So it's kind of coming from some of these same underlying biases. But again, in a virtual environment, you can see how that really could get problematic when maybe for your male peer, you know, whose kid's running in, needing a Band-Aid or, you know, needing to help with getting on their online school and everyone's sort of, you know, warmly disposed to him. The same thing might happen to you and you may not receive that same kind of response, right? And then again, I think women are very aware of this, which is why I wasn't too surprised to see in that latest McKinsey lean-in data that women are actually quite worried about that and worried about how the need for caregiving that they're, that stress they're under right now is impacting how they're viewed at work. 
And that seems to segue really nicely into the other trend that we're seeing where women are leaving the workforce in droves. The numbers that I read is that in September, 865,000 women over 20 dropped out of the workforce in the U.S. and just 216,000 men in the same age group dropped out, according to the U.S. Labor Department. Is that connected to some of what we were just talking about, about women being in part um more conscious of the sort of dual needs and feeling like they're failing at work and that they can't do both? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're talking about here, and I think this is also true kind of, again, not just for women in white collar settings, but a lot of working mothers in general, is it's a forced choice, right? I mean, calling it a choice to leave the workforce, I think often does a real disservice to the to the women who are making those decisions, right? Because it's really not a freely made choice. It's often not what they want to do, but they feel forced into it. And they feel forced into it, you know, I think fundamentally in this country, we conceive of and we approach childcare not as infrastructure that enables our economy to function, which is what it is, but as kind of an individual problem for families, which really in effect means mothers to solve, right? So whether this is affecting women kind of lower on the economic ladder who just don't have access at all to childcare at certain points. And so it's really very much a forced choice in terms of we don't have publicly available supports for them, right? So they're in that situation. But what you see is even higher earning women who might ostensibly be able to afford it feel kind of backed into a corner with, as you just said, maybe feeling like they're failing at work and at home, right? Which of course is an incredibly kind of psychically draining experience. And often I think families are kind of forced into making these short-term calculations about what makes sense, right? Economically. And if you've got a higher earner and a lower earner in the family, and you don't feel like you can manage the available childcare that's out there, then yes, it makes sense in the short term to sacrifice the lower earner's career, right? And also just an implicit point there is that there's a gender pay gap so that in many families, not because of the nature of your work, but simply because of the existing gender pay gap, which is worse for women of color, you are making less than your partner. Right, right. We know that significant time out of the labor force dramatically reduces, you know, your lifetime earnings. It's really hard to get back in if you've been fully, completely out for a long period of time. And I think what we don't often talk about is the way that women sort of really feel that pressure to make those short-term decisions that can feel like we're in this emergency situation. Even before the pandemic, this was something, you know, that women experienced, right? And they're having to make these decisions that have these really long-term consequences for their careers and their lives that are very hard to overcome. And where we kind of push them, again, kind of back them into a corner to make these decisions that, you know, ultimately disadvantage them for the long term. I want to dig in further into a little bit before the pandemic, because the context that we entered the pandemic in as far as women in the workforce goes is confusing to me because I read that at the end of 2019, for just the second time, American women held over half of all payroll jobs. And this seems like really good news. Like we were making huge strides since the 1970s and the entrance of women in the workforce. And, you know, the economy was growing as a result of this increased presence. Why was it that there was this vulnerability. I mean, clearly there was a crack that got split open into a gaping hole, but what was going on underneath the surface? Because the figure of women consisting of more than half the workforce seems like an enormous stride in the direction of progress. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the one thing that 
is really important to realize about sort of the state, called the state of women in the workplace, right, over the past, as you said, like since maybe the 1970s, you know, when we really started to see discrimination become illegal, right, because a lot of sex discrimination used to be perfectly legal, and that really started to change in the 1960s, you know, 70s, certainly even into the 1980s. The 1980s was when sexual harassment, right, was, became something that actually uh, was illegal and was something that someone could bring a claim about. And so we've seen tremendous progress, right, since that time. Uh, We've also seen women's access to education increase dramatically, right, which is a huge piece of that, right, when women were kind of restricted in terms of their educational opportunities. Obviously, that had a direct impact on their entry into the labor force and where they could go in the labor force. So, I mean, I certainly there's been tremendous progress, but I think what's important to note also is that in terms of the proportion of women in positions of power and positions of leadership, that's remained pretty flat since the 1990s. So you are seeing women enter, but women are either not ascending and they're getting stuck or they're getting pushed out, which, as we just talked about, was a phenomenon already happening. I wanted to dig in more into the long-term consequences here. It's not like when the pandemic ends, like, great, everybody goes back to work. It'll be just like it was. Short-term decisions have really long-term consequences for people's careers, but also for the economy at large. Women in the workforce has a huge impact on the economy. And I was wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think it's often one we don't we don't frame it that way often enough, right? So we talk about, oh, this is terrible for women, you know, this is going to set back women's progress, you know, which is all true, right? I mean, I share those same feelings, right? And over the past few months, seeing this unfold, feel that same anxiety and feel the way that this is going to impact kind of the status of women. But I think we often don't frame it around what is this doing to our organizations and our society and our economy, right? I mean, I view it as it's a talent drain. So if you're an organization that sends a message ultimately through not supporting working parents, primarily working mothers through this time period. You're an organization that is probably going to be seen as less desirable for women in general to work at, right? You're going to probably have workers who are less engaged. You are also just, again, missing out on the talents of a really significant part of the population. Oh, I was going to say, it also seems like diversity isn't for diversity's sake. You're also missing out, I think, to the talent point, you're also missing out on a larger range of perspectives that could potentially help you with solutions, problem solvings in ways that if your working population is too homogenous, you're going to miss out on. Exactly. Yes. No, that's exactly right. And that's what I was sort of heading. Um, It's not simply in an absolute sense, right? You have a smaller pool. If you only really are recruiting men and women without children, say, or primarily men, right? I mean, of course that's true. And you can see how just at sort of a basic level, that doesn't seem logical. But absolutely, if you are really constructing a company that's homogenous, you're exactly right. You're missing out on the benefits not only of kind of individual people, but we do know from lots of research that more diverse groups, groups that are more diverse in terms of race and gender in particular, tend to be better at problem solving, more creative. Just the experience of working with in a kind of sustained, substantive, not superficial, but really tackling hard problems together way, working with people who are different from you, just that alone leads to better creativity and problem solving and better group cohesion. It's absolutely the case that if we are heading toward a place where we're going to have a more homogenous company, a more homogenous workforce, when it comes to gender, that's really not going to benefit us, you know, either at the individual company level or broadly in terms of the economy. 
And it seems like if we had more women in power at the highest levels of jobs and at the CEO and CFO levels, that maybe this would be more of a conversation, like maybe the shifting the notion of how daycare and childcare was conceived of as a structural need rather than like the nuclear family's problem. Maybe there would be some change there. Yeah, I would hope so. Although I think certainly what I think more and more fathers not only are aware of this, I think fathers have always been aware of this, but right, sort of feel more empowered to speak up about it. You you have people like Alex Ohanian, right, talking, you know, writing these op-eds about why it was so important for him to take paternity leave, right, and sort of saying, we need actually men to step up and say this you know, matters for us just as much. We've sort of been silenced and it hasn't really been kind of culturally permissible for us to talk about, but this is important for us too. So I absolutely, I think it would be great to to have this conversation be, again, less in the zone of, oh, well, let's support or help women and more in the zone of, we need this kind of infrastructure for our companies to thrive and flourish, particularly in a global economy when many other developed economies actually do have some of these infrastructural supports in place. And and that's not something that U.S. companies can rely on. So that's what I would say sort of about the public policy level, which I think is critical. It's not my area of expertise, so I don't want to give too many recommendations. Um, (laughs) My colleagues over at the Kennedy School, I think, have tons of great research, probably recommendations about what our elected officials, kind of what we as a society should be doing. I do think, though, even that said, even in the context where we don't have that public infrastructure, that there are things companies can do. Absolutely. And we talked about this a little bit in this HBR article from a few months back. And I think a lot of it does come down to education. So I think it's really important for managers to just know about things like the motherhood penalty and those biases, right? I think the more that we can do at the organizational level for everyone, particularly everyone who manages people, to be educated about that, right? And so just simply to know that that's in play, to educate people about that in a way that, you know, it's not about shaming them or about saying, you must have these biases and so you're a bad manager. No, it's just about saying these are very powerful cultural norms. They affect us all. They affect our judgment. Let's be aware of them. And then let's use that to motivate ourselves to apply objective criteria and objective standards so that we're not falling back on those biases. So that's kind of one thing that I would say is the more organizations can do to educate managers about the ways that women in particular mothers are treated differently and then sort of empower them and make them accountable for overcoming that, right? So that's sort of baseline. And then I think you've got to just get really clear on what your priorities are so that you can actually make those kinds of objective judgments, right? Especially in a time of crisis or a time when things are chaotic, it's easy, again, just to kind of fall back on what feels right or what feels like a good, strong performance. And so you think, okay, well, I keep getting emails from Joe all hours of the day and night. I've noticed Jill is, I'm not getting as many emails from her, or I know she's not actually working as many hours. And often we as managers, you know, and I manage people myself, right? It it takes more effort sometimes to step and think about what are the evaluation criteria I'm applying, right? So that's like a very easy trap we fall into, right? Of just, it feels like this person is performing at a higher level just because they're more visible, you know, because they're asking more questions. And sometimes that might be true, right? Those things can be clues, but it's really important that we don't just rely on kind of that, the data that's most available and easiest and on the surface, right? We really need to actually think about how can we measure performance in a way that's fair and objective. So in fact, if you look at Jill and Joe's productivity, it may very well be the case that 
Jill is not any less productive, right? She's just may simply be working in a different way. And that was true before the pandemic, right? And this is, again, not just, you know, as it pertains to gender, but, you know, um, we've really, I think, got to get managers comfortable with recognizing the value that people bring through different styles, right? And not sort of applying a, fr- a rubric of, you know, being a high performer means doing everything exactly like this one archetype that just so happens to be white and male. So that's kind of another thing getting really clear about your priorities and getting really clear about how you're evaluating people and what you're evaluating them on, right? Not just on how many emails a day you get from them, even though that kind of may just be at top of mind and may feel like, oh, okay, well, they must be they must be kind of my hardest working employee. So, I mean, those are two things I would say kind of at the manager level. And then I, you know, are sort of at the level of how companies should, the expectations companies should have of managers, right? To sort of be educated about these biases and to put in place these thoughtful and objective criteria. But then also I think companies need to empower managers to work with their employees at this really challenging time, right? In a way that makes sense for everybody. So if managers sort of aren't empowered to creatively think about how one of their reports can manage their work and home responsibilities, then it makes it very hard to judge people objectively. If managers aren't empowered to think about, okay, well, here's what we need to get done. Here's what this employee is dealing with. How can I create the conditions that enable them to succeed? If managers sort of are forced into treating everyone in a cookie cutter model and don't have that sort of, don't have that sort of uh, power to really have their eyes focused on the goal and how to enable their team to meet that goal, it's going to be much harder for them. Um, and that feels to be, like a to shift fair. to more long-term thinking rather than having the short-sighted thinking. Yes, I would argue exactly what you're saying, that if we demonstrate to Jill, right, that she's valued, that we're thinking about kind of her future at the company and we're really trying to think about how we can be as fair as possible during this really difficult time, it's a lot more likely that Jill is going to really put in kind of equal or more effort on thinking about how she can continue to contribute and stay engaged. And again, you know, then that has the effect of, you know, Jill's able to feel the, a stronger incentive to stay in her career just full stop, right? If she's has opportunities to continue to do fulfilling and satisfying work. I mean, again, there's lots of research that shows that differences and kind of exits from companies and jobs between men and women really are about the fact that women see fewer opportunities for advancement and fewer um, opportunities for satisfying work. You know, I mean, that often is what really is driving women's exits from the labor force very much pre-pandemic. And I would argue is also just getting intensified now, right? It's hard to be fulfilled at work, right? When you feel stressed. And then on top of that, you sort of feel demoralized and feel unsupported at work, right? And you don't feel like you're getting the assignments. You don't feel like you're doing it. You don't feel like your job is important and satisfying and meaningful. Well, that doesn't really encourage you to stay connected to it. Jill, wherever you are, we've got your back. We can figure this out. <laughs> it seems like one other area that if you're an individual, if you're not in the the managerial space that everyone can contribute to is also talking about this. I think the if you can call it a silver lining of what we're seeing with these numbers is that we're talking about it. We're talking about some of the really deep underlying social norms that are contributing to women being uh, shuffled out of the workforce. And with or without a pandemic, there might have been other things that tripped this up and sort of showed the deep fissures. And it seems like we need to keep talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do agree with you. That I think about the same way. There's sort of a silver lining to the fact that this is something that I'm now seeing so many articles about, so many of the great researchers whose work I've looked to for years. You know, I'm seeing quoted more and more, right? These studies about 
the outcomes we're already seeing, women exiting the labor force or lower hours or lower productivity, you know, are getting a lot of media coverage. And I think this is definitely, from what I've heard, a big conversation in companies. You know, I've done some webinars and kind of presentations for a few different companies since putting out that article because I think it is top of mind for people, right? And there is a sense of urgency. So I think that's absolutely true. So I am encouraged by that. And I do think there's a huge opportunity for men to be speaking out about this. You know, as I was saying before, I think in general, that's true. That's There's a chapter in the book that you mentioned in the intro that is coming out in the spring where we talk about the role of men. And I really view that as just a critical lever and a kind of undertapped resource for advancing gender equity and gender equality is the role of men. And so I think there's a huge opportunity for men, not just certainly those in leadership, you know, CEOs, et cetera, but also, right, just in our everyday lives for men to be talking about the fact that these impacts of the pandemic are affecting families, right? And they're affecting mothers and fathers. And I think there's been less cultural space for men to talk about the effects on them. And I think that we really do need to shift that. And that's an opportunity to change the conversation. And again, as you said, sort of bring it to the top of everyone's mind how important this is. And it's not just something that's sort of a problem for mothers that we can push over to the corner. Absolutely. Well, Colleen, thank you so much for joining us. This was really great. I am so appreciative and I just loved the research that led to this. So I'm appreciative of the work that you've done as well. Thank you, Molly. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. And until next week, stay strong.